0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. Today's guest is a journalist, writer, and Bram Stoker Award-winning editor of Dark Delicacies, Original Tales of Terror and the Macabre by the world's greatest horror writers. He was a columnist for both Fearnet and Blumhouse.com. He's been nominated for over half a dozen awards, including the Shirley Jackson Award and The Black Quill. His short story, The Lost Herd, originally published in Hot Blood 2 in 2005, was turned into the premiere episode of NBC's Fear Itself. And he is the co-founder and owner of Dark Delicacies, a book and gift store known as The Home of Horror, located in Burbank, California, which won the El Post Negro Award from Italy for Best Specialty Store. Please welcome to the show, Del Howison. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you, Del. Thanks for joining us today. Uh You do have the distinction of being the first this type of guest on the show. Do you know what that is? My wife knows what that
1: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. The first straight male guest on Dead for Filth. And I think that uh, 30-some episodes, almost 40 episodes in. Wow, that many. Yeah, uh, we're subverting the genre. (laughs) But lest my listeners think that I'm pulling a fast one on them, I know that we have some, some tales to tell across both the horror and LGBTQ spectrum, which is why I asked you here today, plus your prolific work in the space. I can't wait to dig in, so I think we should just get going. We should,
1: while well, these mics are working. Right? <laughs> we had a little a technical problem at the beginning. We're fine now. So. Yeah, but that's the, that's the way it goes. Um, so why don't we kick off the show with the same
0: first question I ask every guest, which is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, what's your relationship to horror? Why do you think horror draws people?
1: It, but why horror? You know, there's something about horror that crosses every boundary. Um, political, economic, everything. There's a relationship there, and and I think you only have to go as far as George Romero to see how it can be used politically and uh, in different ways. Besides, it's fun, and I like seeing people slashed up, but, but. <laughs> it, it is such a broad spectrum from psychological horror to slasher horror to whatever. And what happened was... Um, when my wife, not at the time, but when my wife and I started dating, mm-hmm. she was a reader of Stephen King and Dean Koontz and stuff like that. And I was a horror lover of film and book and whatever. And when we moved in together, we wanted a couple of tchotchkes to kind of reflect our taste and there was nothing. And this was, let's see. I'm going to say 27 years ago. Okay. And um the only thing that was out there was that stupid dog gargoyle with the wings that you could <laughs> see in <laughs> in everybody's garden. So, um we wanted to start populating our house with with things that were to our taste and they weren't there and and we got together as a team and started working that. Right. And that's uh, that's co-
0: sort of where the seeds of the store began. That's where so, the
1: seeds of the store began.
0: But as we've noticed, Dark Delicacies isn't just a store; it is also an anthology series that you edit, and you are an author. Uh, and I feel like writing has always been something you were interested in. Oh, so yeah. let's let's take it back. When did you first delve into the world of writing and know that this is what
1: you wanted to do? Well, actually, my first major bits of writing was in the military. Uh, when I was in the army, I worked for the uh, PIO, which was the Public Information Office, and did things for um, the the Post newspaper for Stars and Stripes, which is a real large newspaper in Europe and I think Asia. I was in Europe at the time. Um, it's the largest English language newspaper in Europe, mm-hmm. which is surprising, and it kind of gave me the bug. Uh, I had written short stories and stuff in school, you know, but it wasn't until I started doing journalism that it really clicked for me.
0: And what was that transition from journalism to creative writing because that is sort of a different mindset. They're they're different. Well, well <laughs> maybe not in today's world, but once upon a time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it is a different mindset, but it's no more different a mindset to me than making the transition. Like I'm doing more with script these days, screenplay. Right. right. And I think from prose to screenplay is the same kind of a transition. Right. Because you're thinking in a completely different space and in a different direction. So, Right. I don't um, write any fiction in inverted pyramid. That's a difference right there from journalism. That's true. <laughs> Start with the main line and work your way down. Tell
0: me about the first thing that you ever had published. Do you remember what it was?
1: In, in articles, I don't. Right. In fiction, um, prose writing, it was amazing because the first thing I had published was The short story, which was a Western horror story called The Lost Herd, which is the one you referred to earlier that got rewritten and scripted. Uh, Mick Garris did the first scripting on it. Right. And then it was in the um, Fear Fear Itself television show. Which not only was it the premiere, but I understand it was also the highest rated episode of the series. It was. It went downhill after they saw mine. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that was the first thing. And it was, the short story was in an anthology that was part of a series called Hot Blood that Mm -hmm. came out in mass market paperbacks for a long time. I was like in Hot Blood 12 or something like that. And one of the editors was Jeff Gelb. And we had a signing. And at the signing, I said, what do you think of doing an anthology with me, and we'll call, name it after the store, call it Dark Delicacies. Right. And he jumped at the idea, and neither one of us put our own stories in our anthologies because there's no sheriff in town to kind of guard and go, right. that really stinks, don't put that in the book. So um, it started that way. Uh, that was my very first attempt and my very first sale. And it went in his book, and then it led to everything else. It, it just, you know, blossomed. That's wild. And then the Dark Delicacies anthologies that you've edited have featured some amazing names. And they're all original stories written for the anthologies. And then they went to other places. The first anthology had a um, zombie story by Ray Bradbury, which may be his only zombie story. Um, He had it. It was what we call a drawer story where, you know, you've you've written tales and they're in the drawer and and that's that. But he had never published it. Right, and um, he said, "Yeah, I think I have something for you, Dell." And he went through and he found this, and he ran it by me, and I said, "That's great." It had that that beautiful afterglow of childhood and memory and different things like Bradbury's known for. But he said, "I need to rewrite it. I need to update it." Mm-hmm. So he did that for me, and um, we put it in the book. It was great. But we've—you're right—with the names, we've had Matheson, we've had uh clive barker paul f paul wilson just many many people yeah
0: f paul wilson made me one of the strongest cocktails i've ever had in my life (laughs) and i still think of that whenever his name is brought up Uh, but i have to ask you know as as someone who came to this uh a little later when when you decided to find found the store because of your interest in horror uh all of a sudden, you're editing these people, these giants of the genre. And I know you're a voracious reader. Right. What, what is it like as someone who has been reading and admiring the work of these people your whole life? And all of a sudden, you've got not only a Ray Bradbury story in your anth- uh, anthology, but you're kind of like responsible for
1: editing him. Like what, what, right. What's that like? Well, one of the things I've found out over the years is the better the writer you find, the less you have to edit. Um, they come to you pretty well edited. Right. There have been a couple that uh, I have just made suggestions. I don't think an editor's job is to change things. I think it's to make suggestions and let them change it in an organic way that they feel is correct. Right. Um, so there have been suggestions, but not many with those writers. I've, I usually leave about six spots open in a book for new writers or <clears throat> um, mid-level writers that, I am not familiar with it could surprise me or I like by getting writers that are out of the genre to write genre because I find that mashup kind of fun right. and those tend to have um a little more work required of them um but no the big boys don't need much and and it was like what do you say well listen Mr King I think we should. <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs>
0: Although uh, you know I, I do think that a good editor does help any author you you as, I, I agree yeah, I was gonna say you would know that as well as anybody that like sometimes when we are off on our our own, we
1: need someone to kind of rein us back in oh yeah, well, that's one reason I don't put any of my own stories in my own books because there's nobody to rein me back in but I because I write a lot of short stories for other people's anthologies. Right. I've had editors come to me and go, I don't mean to say anything, but I have an idea about And it's like, just spit it out there. Right. And right. Um, probably 75% of the time, I go with you know their idea or their change. I think since we're both after the same thing, which is the best end product you can come up with, Uh, I think it's nice to have those other sets of eyes on there and and I agree and I think that writing like any
0: craft is sort of malleable in the way that even if you're considered a master there's always something new you can learn based on who you're collaborating with or who is providing notes A, a different editor with a new author is going to provide something a little different than maybe their last work, even if the voice of the author is always there. Stephen King is always going to be Stephen King. But but I I guarantee if he was sitting here with us now, he would say that with every project, he learned something new. And uh, I think that's really interesting about you delving into the world of screenwriting now, too, because I think that you're going to see that that's true with screenwriting and producer notes as well. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and actually, I look forward to them. I'm a person that much more enjoys the editing process than right. the, the original, original writing process. And I, I, I know it's different because the original writing process, and unless you're on one of those streaks, you know, where all of a sudden the water's pouring out and the well's pumping and you just can't write fast enough to get it out of your head. Right. But most of the time, for me, Even though you have the idea, there's a little bit of teeth pulling going on there to get that story on the paper. See, and I think
0: every writer uh, is different in that way because I tend to like the writing more than the editing. Uh, I, of course, like the editing because it's sort of like after baking a cake, then you get to decorate it. Mm -hmm. But there's still something cathartic to me about the the building blocks, seeing the DNA of it coming together.
1: Um, I don't hate it. like Some writers go oh, I have to write another thing. It's driving me crazy. I, hate, I don't hate it. It's just much harder for me.
0: Right. Well, you also have the unique... Uh place in in the history of my guests most of my guests know that I'm a writer but uh you actually get to see like the product of of me in the process of writing because frequently I write at a coffee shop near dark delicacies and Del probably much to his chagrin gets to see me (laughs) two or three (laughs) times a week comes stomping into the store complaining about this or ranting about
1: that uh but I think that
0: what I like is because you're a fellow writer, you get it.
1: And rarely, uh, I must say, is your rant though about oh, they gave me these notes and I'm it's driving me crazy. You know, can the airplane be a dog instead? And you know, you don't <laughs> uh, you don't have those complaints. It's usually I've got four projects and I have a deadline for three of them in two days. Right. You know, so. Uh, there are so many of us out there who wish we had those problems. I think you're very lucky, but it's it's not only are you talented, but the fact is that we all know this industry demands a certain amount of luck, and right. you've had things fall into place that have at least given you a steady stream. And yes. yet, yeah. and yet, <laughs> we will all say that you're always, all of us are always scrambling for the rent. It's true.
0: That's the thing uh, about... The world of creative work is that it can be feast or famine, but sometimes when it's feast, there's still a hint of famine there. You have uh, to, you have to work. I am, or fear of famine, fear of famine. I am always. Uh, Honest about the fact that I am grateful for the work that I do and I love the work that I do and uh, I Never will complain about the work. I'll complain about the nitty-gritty of the work right. because that's just how people are But like the work in general I'm happy with because I've also been there where I've been waiting for things to happen and I it, I also am no fool I know invariably I'll probably at some point be waiting again mm-hmm. uh, but that's sort of the lot of of the creative where um You know, you just do it because you love it. And no better person to have that vantage point than you in the place of of Dark Delicacies because over the stores 25 years, almost 25 years, you've had so many artists in and out and you've probably seen people at the peak of their powers emerging, like doing all sorts of
1: things. Uh, The one that's driving me crazy right now, not the person, but along the line of what you're talking about is Back when the store opened up a couple of decades ago, you know, you had directors like Tom Holland and Stuart Gordon and all of these people working, and now Joe Dante, Romero, and then here we go ahead 15, 20 years, and none of them can find work anywhere, the money's not there, it's, I mean, occasionally they get a job here and there, right? but nobody is working like they used to, and they were the prolific horror directors of our time. Right. Do you find that's true, though, across the board
0: in terms of the industry uh, with creative individuals where there's just a shifting landscape?
1: Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, everybody cites reasons. And yet, to me, it feels like the stock market You don't know why it went up today. You don't know. There was a war in Afghanistan and Donald Trump picked his nose. We don't know that that affected (laughs) the, the stock market, but people always make up reasons. One reason that is universal is nothing to do with youth. But it is the fact that, hey, in horror this year, there were 5,000 people working. In horror this next year, there's 1,000 new people that have entered the field. Right. So even though you have the people going out the other end or dying off or whatever it may be, you always have that new high school group graduating and that new college class coming out. Right. So you're always adding new people in there, with, which spreads it thin. But I will say, yeah, it does spread it thin. But what I
0: find really interesting about this genre more than any other is there's something special about the fact that if you're really passionate about horror, there's a way in. Mm-hmm. If you have the drive and the creative ability and you're willing to
1: put in the work,
0: whereas... you And know, can
1: live on one meal a day. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but you know, you, you've, seen it, you've seen it, you see it, people who make a movie in their backyard with their friends on a weekend and it's a horror movie, it finds distribution somewhere because there's an audience for it. If you and I decided to go out and make a searing period piece set in Victorian England with, with no money, no <laughs> one would buy it. But that's
1: sort of the exciting thing about horror is if you really love it, there's, there's a place for you. And there's, um, like, like with your period example, there is a monetary thing that you can get away cheap or inexpensively and yet still make something pithy or scary or whatever if you want to without just saying, hey, look, let's throw buckets of blood around. It's a horror movie. Right. Um, And also, as you and I have seen in our time, the number of platforms for stuff available has just exploded. Right.
0: Which I think is great if you're a creator. Right. Because it used to be there were limited places for your work to be seen. But now in the world of digital and streaming, which I know that maybe some of the older guys will complain about because it's not it's not allowing them the five million dollar budgets they used to get. Right. But which tra- felt like more than five million back then. Right. But and that's just the that's the way of the world, the cost of inflation. But there's no longer one gatekeeper that says, no, not you, but him. Now people with different voices and different means If they have a creative idea and they have the drive, they can make it happen, too, because they can find a platform. And I think that's exciting. That's the one thing I really like. Yeah,
1: that's very exciting. The the availability of places for your stuff to be seen is crazy. Right. And the first one that kind of went crazy was YouTube. People could shoot a little movie and put it up on YouTube. And then all these people watch it, and then they get 50 cents from the exposure. But it led to so many people getting real jobs. Yes you know, they go, now it was an audition piece. What I think the problem may be now is that there are so many platforms that people can't find you. You know what I mean? I, I go to the movies and before the movies, they show this thing like, oh, Ozark Hillbilly Killers season two coming out on Bubba TV. And I'm like, what is Bubba TV and where was season one? And how do I even find it? I can't. I can't locate this stuff.
0: I uh, I am looking forward to the new lineup of programming on Bubba TV. This <laughs> coming this fall.
1: Uh, well, uh, I mean, it's like if you have Hulu, you have these fifty channels available. But if you have Amazon Prime, then you have these different ones. And right.
0: No, it, there is a danger to be lost in the shuffle. But I think it's all the more impetus for artists to really create something worthwhile that
1: stands out. That's what I was going to say. I think maybe it's a better chance to give quality and let quality come to the surface. I'm hoping. I don't know. We're in the infancy of all of these platforms right now. Right. Um, Well, since we're talking about the world
0: of of, uh, indie films and low-budget filmmaking, one thing I didn't mention in the intro is that you do occasionally act. I do. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you hold the record of being the actor to have portrayed Renfield from Dracula the most times on screen. That, According to Video Watchdog, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did it four times. So tell me about that gig, like your, your long, long-going stint as Renfield.
1: Well, I do, I do a lot of C movies, and... Um... You mean like the letter C like the not letter like C maritime films not <laughs> maritime films, right? Yeah. This is like there's A movies and B movies and I do C movies, yeah. um and most of most of those were like on the verge of being Skinamax type movies, you know. Right. Um so there was there was a little titillation in there but at the same time it and it's usually titillation with horror because those are the two least expensive things that somebody can do right so i did all four of the renfield films for the same director writer um and we just carried it through uh because dracula in his film sometimes it was female sometimes it was male had to show up at various points in the movie, but they needed the character to carry it through. Mm, so right. they needed the Renfield character to... Uh, none of these were the original Dracula-type story. Sure. You know, these were Hollywood Dracula-type stories. But it was a lot of fun, because me being the through line, it gave me a lot of work, and I met a lot of really cool people, and I got to to work with uh, some interesting people, like John Carl Buchler who did the special effects for... Uh, one of the films I was in, and and I had a good time. Yeah, he directed Friday the 13th Part 7.
0: Uh, he created The Ghoulies. Um, I remember John uh, told me once that the reason The Ghoulies talk in Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College, is because they went to college. There you go. Yeah, because they didn't talk in the first two movies, but now they have university education.
1: And either a Ghoulies or one of the later Goonies, one of those was a Mick Garris movie. That's right. Oh, critters, critters. Oh, it was yeah, yeah. crit critters, ghoulies, goonies. There, yeah. Okay, all right. There we go. <laughs> well, you know the eighties. If it wasn't something trying to eat you, and what was which one is the one that's like they they hail as the worst? It's got June Lockhart's daughter in it, uh, Anne, and, and it's uh, a goonie or a critter or it. Then it's listed as one of the worst films ever made. But people go to festivals to watch it.
0: Oh, it's not. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Now I wonder. No. Oh, it's not Troll 2, is it? Is it Troll 2? T- See, trolleys. We could call it Troll. <laughs> 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 so we've talked a little bit about the ins and outs in the business of writing and, and uh, low budget filmmaking, which I feel like sort of jumps ahead on the timeline. You mentioned how you and your wife came together and were joined to- together by your love of horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had started writing in the military. But tell me a little bit about the, the early life of Dell and your your journey into that, because I know that before dark delicacies, you probably didn't think that the world of horror is where you were
1: headed. No, no, in fact, um, not going too early yet, but still while I was in l a because I came out to l a in seventy one uh I worked sixteen years down in the garment district, which during that time period, um boy, talk about seeing the political change during that time period. Los Angeles became the number one garment district, out-garmenting New York. Right. And then all the free trade agreement and all of that stuff went through, and it died. On, I mean, literally, factories closed and stuff because all of the manufacturing got moved off uh, offshore. Right. Um, so I saw it go through that complete cycle. I was downtown working during the uh, Los Angeles riots. And uh, that was really a weird thing. They allowed us to leave work early, which I thought was big of them. <laughs> there's, there's plumes of smoke going up everywhere. I We parked in back of the building in the alley, and... I came out of the building to get into my car. It was about 2 in the afternoon, I think, 3. And the alley was filled with people, and they all had, like, um, shopping bags filled with shoes because Caddy Corner, from where my place was, was a little strip mall, and they had broken into the shoe store there, all of the stores they would broken into, and they were figuring out, putting the shoes up to their foot. No, that's not my size. Here, you try it. And and it was like a flea market in the back there.
0: That's in, that's you know very industrious. It yeah. At least they were sharing.
1: That's what I like. Yeah, about. I'm not mad at that. <laughs> uh, and you had come from Detroit before. Yeah, Motown. Yeah. So we say Detroit, Detroit, Detroit.
0: Detroit. Yeah. Uh, now you told me a story, and I think that this will be of uh, interest to listeners for of Dead for Filth uh, that leads into your work at the Garment District. Right. But while you were in Detroit. You had a job selling a certain item at club. You mean when I was entrepreneurial. Yes. Yes. Could you tell my listeners what you went into clubs to sell and how you got that job?
1: Oh, I think I, I sold a lot of um tape cleaner. <laughs> it was um it was amyl. Amyl nitrate. Amyl nitrate, which they sold a lot of times as VHS and whatever tape cleaner.
0: Oh, they still do. If you go to an adult store to buy poppers, that's what we're talking about, kids right. poppers, they still call them VHS cleaner, which I find hilarious yeah. because who has a VCR <laughs> anymore other than hardcore collectors? That's it. I'm sure the kids who are buying them today, they just think, you know, they don't even know what they're, they're
1: fake buying. No. Yep. I don't think they have an idea. Oh, VHS cleaner. What's a VHS? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so there was an area in Detroit... Um, Around Woodward and Six Mile and in Highland Park, which was the gay area where all of those clubs were concentrated, basically, Um, the bathhouses, the clubs, uh, the whatever. And this was at the height of disco. So, um, poppers were the thing. So, you know, and it worked out well for me going in as a straight guy. I could go into the clubs. I didn't have uh, any involvement with relationships or anything. And I was able to take care of their needs and make a little money and move on. In fact, that's also, though... Funny enough, where all of the heterosexual adult movie theaters are located in that exact same area. That's interesting. Yeah, It's sort of like the city sort of quartered off what they considered to be the unmentionable. It was the red light district without it being a red light district. Do we have a different color light for, for just the club, a blue light district? I don't know.
0: Oh, I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> I would like to, you know, maybe a a rainbow light. Oh, there you go. No. But not then. Not then. No, there was no rainbow coalition. There was none of that stuff.
0: Well, the rainbow didn't come about till later, anyway. When? Uh, I think it was the 70s because the gentleman who created the rainbow flag just recently passed away.
1: Oh, okay. That's- See, you learn something listening to Dead for Filth. That's what we strive for. <laughs> um,
0: So how did you end up in that job, though? Because I feel like in the disco era, where many parts of the countries, being gay was still very illegal. Yeah. uh, And, you know, you're living in the Midwest, where I'm sure it was frowned upon. A little bit. How is it you managed to not only uh, end up there selling
1: poppers in bathhouses and clubs, but how did you stumble into that job to begin with? You know, I'm not sure, because um, I was definitely a hardcore rock and roller. Mm-hmm. Um, used to even own those shirts that said "Disco sucks." Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> I had the the whole thing, and there was like. Near that time, there was like three of us or so living together in a house in Birmingham, a rented a rented house in Birmingham. And I think I worked a variety of different jobs. The one I worked the longest was driving a van delivering medical supplies all over the state of Michigan, um, dropping off the blood substitutes and this and that. So every day I got in the truck and drive and drove and came back. It was like an eight hour thing. I drive clean across the state making deliveries. But um, I'm trying to think, as I'm, as I'm segueing here, um, how I got into that. Outside of um, doing a few substances myself in those days, I, uh, I, I don't know exactly how that transit Maybe there's pieces of my memory missing. <laughs> I <did.
0: laughs> well, I just like that you also delivered medical supplies because by day you are delivering items to take the edge off, and by night I'm delivering items to uh, take, take the, the edge, edge off. off. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you move from Detroit to LA, you end up in the garment district. And is it true that uh, a lot of the work that you did in the garment district was
1: specifically for the leather community? And there was there was a lot of that. I actually covered seven states. Um, I covered from downtown LA. North to about the middle of the state, and then I covered seven adjoining states. But like, if I went to um, Texas, I was dealing specifically specifically with the aeronautic industry. Interesting. Like people making custom planes, and they had to do upholstery and different things inside the airplane they were making. I, uh, here, I worked with a lot of people who had leather shops um, from. Uh, Alfonso, who did a lot of leather for Western movies, making gun belts and vests and things like that, to um, people over by LACC and stuff who had their own leather shop that catered to the fringe folk Right, um, that were making harnesses. And uh, my biggest one here was for Doc Johnson, who was a big adult manufacturer in North Hollywood. They covered an entire square city block. And it was the first time I walked in there, I was just blessed. I was blown away at what I was seeing. They had an assembly line automated, and it had molds on it that there was injection plastic being shot. And these molds hung down from the assembly line, and the inside of them were in the shape of dicks. And... They would shoot the the plastic in there and it would come around and by the time it got to the end, it was hard enough that they could take the mold and pop the dicks out right and they would they had <laughs> they had them on a great big table that was surrounded by about twenty five latino women right who were popping out these like nine to fifteen inch dildos sure but like any model when if you ever built models when you were a kid they came on a little plastic thing and you broke the piece off right so there was always a little plastic nub sticking on them that you had to break so these women are all standing around with scissors with nine inch dicks in their hand cutting the little plastic nubs off the end of them And um, all I could think about was, I wonder what happens when they get home to Hubby. Does he he (laughs) feel bad about this or what? But they also did, they made the harnesses that you would snap adult accoutrement onto. And I provided the snaps and the machinery, the automated machinery that would put those snaps on. And if a machine broke, then my job was to go in there and repair it so they would buy more snaps and we'd all make more money. And see, this is why... At the top of the episode, I said,
0: <laughs> although Dell is our first straight male guest, there is intersection to the queer community. And what I think is interesting, too, is that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about this before, but early in your life, you had thought of or did go to the seminary?
1: I went to John Brown University, which was a private Christian college in Arkansas, and um, I was going to uh, be a a preacher in fact in one year uh or a minister i guess i don't know the difference they yeah. all it's all the word you know right um i think i read the bible 3 times in one year and we were doing comparative religion study and stuff but i was also taking broadcasting at the same time so um having a little bit of a gift to gab which you need in either profession sure uh i kind of veered more towards the broadcasting and I didn't want to be there. There, right. were, there were a lot of straight poops there, and, and I just wasn't there headwise. Right. So my parents said we will only pay, I was a youngin. my parents said we'll only pay for college if you go to a private Christian college. And I had picked that one because it was the furthest from Michigan I could find. And um, so the only way for me to get out of it was when the second year started, attend nothing I would go and do my broadcasting gig. Right. But I never went to class, so they flunked me out across the board and my parents couldn't send me back.
0: And this is before all of the 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 this yeah. that stuff that we just talked about. So what I love is the idea that you at one point are going to school potentially to become a minister and then fast forward to here's some poppers at a bathhouse here's some snaps for a harness while these women are cu- cutting nib- nubs off of dildos nubs off of dildos so it's sort <laughs> of like i love the trajectory of of that
1: journey um and y- you did work in broadcast for a while yes i did work in broadcast for a while i'd i'd love to work in broadcast again but you know am radio and and stuff is so weird now. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, well, now it's all podcast and satellite. <laughs> now it's well. I like podcasts. I love. I'd do right. podcasts in a second, but now all of the good radio is gone to satellite, right? Um, and in the beginning, I don't know how much it's changed now, but if you listen to like Jim Ladd, who is a big one on underground radio on XM radio or whatever it is, most of those people have their own music collections that they play. It's right. not like you go into the NBC studio and get to pull from the library. Right. So, and if
0: you're on an FM station, they tell you what to play, <coughs> and it's only the top 40.
1: Yeah. So it, that's still programmed, or at least on uh, on any of the terrestrial radio, whereas the satellite radio um, seems a little more freeform, which is what I got used to coming up in the late 60s. Right. Uh I do just love the, the trajectory of your career
0: from, from Holy Place to Radio Place. To Holy Place. To Holy Place. <laughs> uh, but one thing that when we first met that I really appreciated and admired about what you do, both with the store and you as a person, is uh, you've always fostered a sense of inclusivity. Great. And uh, I'm wondering, because there has been a lot of cross-section in your life with the LGBTQ community and other uh, outsiders, um, do you think that horror is a place where people come together because
1: it's sort of the outsider genre? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, And I don't think you have to push any agenda to be in it. Yeah. You know, nobody needs to know anything or people can know everything. It, it works either way. I think the last real barriers, I think, I think the gay community has a strong foothold in horror. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. But I'm not, and I'm not quite sure that the blacks or the women don't need to still get in more. Yeah. Uh, but I think that may be the entertainment field in general. Right. As opposed to just horror. But one thing you know and and I know is if you are embraced by the horror community, you're embraced for the rest of your life. You can do one B-lousy movie, but that everybody saw, and you can do conventions the rest of your life, signing autographs, and the people will come to see you.
0: Right. There's something celebratory about this genre. And I think what it is is as much as maybe it doesn't seem like it on the day-to-day basis we do really like to raise each other up because i think that people who come to horror for whatever reason they are looking for something they're looking for each other i I'd sort of i love i love the 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 story about how you and sue wanted tchotchkes that reflected your interests and there were none so you made the place where people go and get it
1: yeah we started with the first thing we did was a table at some comic book convention or something right. at a Red Lion Inn out in Ontario or somewhere. And and that's not Canada for you people listening on the other side of the country.
0: That's right. There is an Ontario, California. If ever you're flying into the greater Los Angeles area, it will be offered as an airport option. Uh, don't.
1: And it, it's <laughs> it's not all that far from La Canada. Oh, that's right. I forgot <laughs> about La, La Canada. Yeah. Uh, California's
0: wild. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we did that, and we did one other show, and we kept talking about it, and then I drove by this strip mall not too far from where we were living, and there was a place for rent, and I was like, well, I'm kind of tired of working in the garment district. Although I couldn't afford not to. Right. Um, But I went in and I talked to the landlord and went home, said to Sue, hey, I found your store. She's like, what? Huh? And we went down there and she saw it. We signed a lease for five years. And the first year, there was nothing in the store. We opened it with our own collection. That's what was in the store. Wow. And I had a friend, Jay Patton, who had a bookstore in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was just getting new racks. And one day we were in our store in the beginning, we were painting and a van pulled up, and it was Jay. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I brought you some wall bookshelves. And he brought his entire thing that he replaced, drove from Phoenix, dropped him in the middle of my store about seven o'clock at night and said, I got to be at work tomorrow, got back in the van and drove back to Phoenix. That's wild. And it was that kind of support and has been that kind of support from the beginning, from the fans, the signers, and everybody that has made the store a success. And
0: tell me a little bit about that first year, because as we mentioned a few times, the store is almost 25 years old. Right. When you opened with just your collection racks from phoenix did you ever
1: think that the store would get to where it is now no no and it wasn't even the dream we just wanted to have our own business that we were our own bosses basically right. doing a genre we like being in that was it but the first year we had to keep our jobs so since i was outside sales and repair for the fastener company mm-hmm. i'd go to the store work the store and do all my phone calling from the counter. Uh, And Sue quit after the first year. She was working at Nestle World Headquarters in Glendale. And she quit after the first year and then ran the store full time. But otherwise, we'd have a friend cover or I'd cover when I'm supposed to be at the other job. And we just kind of worked it until it happened.
0: What I love about Dark Delicacies is how it has truly become, I think, an institution not just in southern california but with the genre in general i talked about how uh it had received the award from italy as best specialty store it also has been entered into the rondo hall of fame uh and one of the things about
1: named after rondo hatton yes yes that's right
0: uh one of the things that i really like about dark delicacies is that It it is really the stop. If you're a horror fan in in Southern California or you're a horror creator, it's sort of like a badge of honor to have done a signing at your store to sign your book, to sign your movie. And so many past guests of this show have done events with you and Sue. And um, the store has come up so many times that it is uh, really, I think, for this generation of, of genre enthusiasts... Part of part of our fabric of, of our of our society, and that's got to yeah. feel good. As somebody who looked at your own personal collection and was like, "We want more of this. We want to be able to provide the community."
1: Yeah, and you did because it started when you know Sue would sell a book at our first store. And the person would leave the store and she'd go in the back room and cry because she'd sold some of her collection. And then she'd come back out and she'd sell another piece of her collection. She'd go back in and cry again. (laughs) I I mean, for that to then develop into it had, we haven't changed horror But we have changed the horror community and what you could, there were no horror stores. And in fact, half of the stuff that we carry, three quarters of stuff we carry now didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And we have people making things for it. And we have had from Guillermo del Toro to Ray Bradbury, we have had the greats come through the store, sign it, embrace it, give it their blessing. Um, I am completely blown away because there was no way this was even in the fantasy dreams. You know?
0: Well, over two decades of events, and like you said, you've had people like Ray Bradbury, Guillermo del Toro, uh, a lot of the greats have come through. Uh, I'm sure it's very difficult to whittle down the list to, like, a greatest hits. But do you have any standout memories of events? And tell me about, like, the first time you realized, oh, this could be more than a bookstore. We could host
1: events where it could be a movie signing or whatever. Actually, I got that idea. I used to go to signing events at a... at um A store over on Ventura. I I want to say Mysterious Galaxy, but that's in San Diego. But it was over there and they'd have book signs. It was a horror sci-fi fantasy store. And I thought, if I ever get a store, this is a good idea because it not only gives people a reason to come to the store, but it gives people a reason to come back to the store. And the, the whole trick in retail is to get people in the front door. After that, it's up to them to find something that they that they like. So um, the very first person who ever, ever signed with us, and my thought at that time was, if I get this first signing, maybe I can get to the point where we can have a signing every month. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and now they're, almost, they're like twice a week. They're twice a week, <laughs> and, and it's groups of five and six people signing, you know. But the first person who ever signed in the store was uh, Sarah Karloff. Oh wow! And uh, hopefully uh, we talked to her at Monster Palooza this past year, and hopefully she'll be back to sign here a quarter of a century later, which oh, would gosh. be interesting.
0: I love that a marked uh, anniversary bookends. Yes. Any other uh, any other standout moments or wild things? Because I know that you get some characters in.
1: We do. We do. We've had some interesting things. My favorite, and this is not to slight anybody, of course, my favorite signer was Ernest Borgnine. Oh. He was such a sweetheart. He was uh, 92 or 93, somewhere in there. And he said, "Dell, if you come pick me up, I'll do the signing. So he gave me directions to his house. And we drove. He lived up on Mulholland. Right. And we picked him up. And and I looked at the house and I said, this is Mikhail's Navy money, isn't it? He goes, yep, sure was. So we're riding in the car down and back and hearing all kinds of wonderful stories from the guy. But he was so sweet. Right. And he said, my favorite thing is that being in my 90s and having five-year-olds recognize me. And I'm like, what? What five-year-old went and saw one of your movies or stuff? He goes, it's The Voice. Yeah. I'm Mermaid Man on SpongeBob. And the kids hear me talk and they go, it's Mermaid Man. I have to tell you, the reach of
0: Spongebob, this is what I love about this show, is I never know where we're going to (laughs) go. The reach of Spongebob is astounding. Yes. In the way that... I'm too old for it, but I know all about it. And one day, you know, I've interacted with many notable people in the industry. I was somewhere, and uh, this guy with thick glasses comes up. I was with Lloyd Kaufman. And Lloyd says, oh, Michael, you know Tom, right? And he talked, and I'm like, it's the
1: voice of SpongeBob. (laughs) (laughs)
0: and, And I realized, I was like, this might be the most famous person I have ever met. Because if you go to another country, they may know who Brad Pitt is, but everybody knows who SpongeBob is. Yeah.
1: So there's there's some very uh, serious merit to that. Yeah, I mean, and how many? They've Two or three films now, feature films have been out with SpongeBob? Antonio Vanderas? Yeah, I just read in the trades the other day that they're going to make another one. Yeah. And the musical, SpongeBob the Musical, which is on Broadway, for those who don't know it, right, tied for the most Tony nominations this year. Right, that was
0: just this yeah, week, in just just, the just episode.
1: Just <laughs> <a> weird... <laughs> and there's a volcano in Hawaii. But yeah, there's... <laughs> But, yeah, that's just crazy. I mean, when you think about it, it's about this, this rude sponge that lives in the ocean whose girlfriend is named, like, Sandy Bottoms or Sandy Butts or something. And, and she's a squirrel with she, an air tank. She has to have an air tank because he's under the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: how come when SpongeBob and Patrick go to the surface, they don't have to wear, like, little fish bowls with water?
1: Surface? In the movie, they went to space. So there you go.
0: This is uh th- these are the places we go. Um <laughs> but no what I do like what you said about how you didn't set out to change horror but you did make an impact on the horror community but I do think Beyond that, yes, Dark Delicacies fosters uh, a sense of community within the people who love horror and the people who gather around it, and it sort of has become a place that a lot of us go to and know, and we celebrate with each other and celebrate with you and Sue. But what I I really think is smart about Dark Delicacies is that it's a brand that extends past the store. We've talked about the anthologies and all of these amazing uh, people who have participated. right and i i can't think of anybody else who has taken uh something like that and also made it into something broader
1: and you you know you say that and i understand what you're saying and yet i don't feel that it is us who have done that it's almost like we own this house and we opened the door and all these weird people came in <laughs> <laughs> and then all this shit happened and i don't know what right you know um it did it i think the reason it changed the horror community because it's a gathering place yes for people of like mind and you could walk in there at any time and maybe run into greg nicotero and you know, uh, Kevin Tenney and Tom Holland all talking about making a movie, and then over here is some stuntman, and then over here. It's just, it is the epitome of location, location, location. Yeah, We could not have done this in Des Moines. True. You know, so a lot of it is that, but without the people in the business and without the fans, it wouldn't be anywhere. Now we want to expand into the... E media instead of just books and putting out anthologies. So, um, you know, we want to do uh, short film platforms. We would like to do Dark Delicacies production as a film thing. I'm talking to my literary agent right now of doing a Dark Delicacies imprint and putting out other people's novels and stuff. Oh, that's cool. Which would be real interesting. And then, as you know from me, I write things completely out of the genre, like I just sold a Western that's going to come out in a year or so. Right, and I wanted to talk
0: to you about that, because I know outside of your interest in horror, you are a big fan of Westerns. You're right. And one of the things that I've talked about with other guests who— I couldn't find another dead genre to be a fan of outside. (laughs) of horror, so I went to it. Well, one of the things I've found with other guests, uh, you know, I've had people come in and talk about musical theater, speaking of the SpongeBob uh, thing, and when we dig into it, even though they feel like different interests, there always seems to be like a little bit of a a connection here and there. And because you like Westerns, and uh, we talked uh, earlier about how uh, The Lost Herd began as a Western
1: horror story. Right. I've written two short story horror short stories that have both been published, so that's been fun. Do
0: you think there is something uh, that connects the world of the western and horror? Is are they are they adjacent
1: genres that are akin? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the big writers like uh, Joe R. Lansdale who writes the Happen Leonard series, which is now a TV series. Right. But he's written a series of straight Westerns. I think he's even won the Golden Spur Award. Right. And he's also w- written uh, weird Westerns with supernatural underpinnings and things like that. So there definitely is. And a lot of times, Westerns and horror are about loners. Right. You know, it's a, you take somebody, it's the the classic horror setup. You take somebody or some people and you put them in a place that they can't leave and then you throw everything at them. And I think that happens a lot in Westerns, too. Yeah. So tell me a little bit,
0: if you can, about this uh, Western novel that you just sold.
1: The Western novel I just sold is called uh, the working title, as we say in the business. Right. <laughs> the Survival of Margaret Thomas. And it's uh, a first-person telling from the female's point of view. Um, And there's only two types of Westerns that have ever been written, a stranger comes to town or they go on a quest. That's it. That's right. every Western in the world. And she goes on a quest. She's actually going across country um, from Missouri to uh, south of Yuma, Arizona in the 1870s, early 1880s, to go to a trial of one of the people she think was responsible for the death of her husband. That she is guilt ridden because she thinks it's her fault that she distracted him and he was killed. Of course, the quest turns into something else and it goes on and on. So there's a touch of true grit mm-hmm. with that kind of quest thing going on. But she's in her 30s. She's not, it's not a young Maddie like it was right. in True Grit. And along the way, she picks up a series of fellow travelers that move with her. So one of them, somebody her husband had arrested and put away in prison. Sometime back she begins an alliance with, and another one is a gypsy lady and and a madam who's quitting her job and pretty soon you have this intrepid intrepid troop of of individuals, loners, you know single people right. who have to band together, and you tell me that that doesn't happen in. Dawn of the Dead or any of the other things where you throw these people together who have nothing in common except they're all facing the same danger. Right. And it's all about survival and sort of facing your mortality. Exactly. Uh, And
0: I, I had wanted to talk about the Western because I wanted to highlight the fact that you wrote a Western where the lead character is female. Right. Because I think that the perception of the Western genre is that it is a primarily male protagonist driven world. Very primarily that. Yeah, and uh, I think there's something exciting about subverting that, if even in a small way, to give us a female lead in a Western. I remember when Sam Raimi did The Quick and the Dead with Sharon Stone. Is it a great movie? Maybe not, but like how often did we get Westerns with a female lead where she's a
1: gunslinger kicking ass? That was a refreshing take. Exactly. Yeah. And yet there's things where you end up with the female being suddenly becoming the kick-ass, like, um, you know, from Terminator or something, uh, where it doesn't really work for me. Like recently I saw A Quiet Place. Oh, yeah. Which I enjoyed the movie. My sphincter tightened at bedpoints points, you know. It was, I. it wasn't, nerve-wracking movie yeah but they had to do that very hollywood moment at the very end of the movie where then she grabs the shotgun and points it yeah. at it. they didn't need that that could have been cut right off the end of the movie and you would have thought more of the film i think but the film works uh well speaking of books and bringing it
0: back to horror uh we didn't get a chance yet to talk about your werewolf book
1: yeah well i have a werewolf book and i co-wrote a vampire book too both for the same publisher Um, written at the exact same time. I love a good book in tandem project. (laughs) Well, you know script in tandem, so. Yeah. (laughs) But um, Ulysses Press hired me uh, kind of as a work for hire and said, would you do a werewolf book? And, And the interesting thing was they said, we have the title and we have all of the chapter headings. You just have to fill it in. How interesting. Like. Like, that's the easy part. You just fill it in because we worked and worked and came up with a title, you know. (laughs) So it was one of the dumbest projects I ever was handed. And I said, I've got to make my name is on here. I have to make some sense out of this. Right. And um, hopefully I did. But when I have a chapter heading like how to tell if a Relative's a werewolf. And this is supposed to be a nonfiction book. Right. You know, it gets a little crazy. But the timeline, the historical werewolf, the sightings, all of that is real stuff. It just, an occasional chapter in there has got tongue planted firmly in cheek. Then they wanted me also to do a vampire dating book. Talk about being inclusive. Right. (laughs) I mean, I've dated a few. They're fine. So (laughs) I got with uh, Elizabeth Burial, and that's her real name who runs Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab, the the scent place. And I said, do you want to co-write this with me? And I used a pseudonym. They asked me if I would, so it made their catalog look bigger of authors. So um, I changed my name to DH, which are my initials anyway, Altair, because it was my alter ego. And uh, (laughs) I see you put some thought. I put some thought into it. If I have to not take credit for this. So we couched the book in a dating book format. But Beth did some incredible historical, she's really good on the historical research and stuff. And we wrote about the 12 tribes of vampires and what famous people were from that tribe that you didn't know were vampires, like Napoleon and Josephine and things like that so it's a really interesting book but people think they're getting this silly little dating book
0: my favorite bit of vampire lore i believe it's uh the vampires from is it china where if you throw a handful of rice they have to stop and pick up every grain yeah
1: that's uh that's from a couple of places but yeah in fact the vampires one of them in the orient are the hopping vampires oh they they hop at you which we go (laughs) you're kidding me right but it's very frightening there yeah
0: I think there's a really cool visual there in a horror movie that hasn't been explored.
1: Yeah, like when we went through that whole thing of J-horror where, you know, kids in my makeup were scary. (laughs) You know, give them dirty hair and put them in my makeup. Oh, that's frightening me to death.
0: Um, So, because we're on the subject of dating vampires, I have to ask... You didn't know you'd go there from Spongebob, did you? uh, You know, I I see the through line, honestly. Um, What would you say is a good piece of advice for people who maybe want to... Engage in a relationship with a vampire.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is I knew several people from the early goth scene who either were or claimed to be. And in fact, I even knew one that spent every night in a coffin. She had a coffin in her front room and she slept in a coffin every night. And I said, don't you think you'll get enough of that later? But <laughs> she, uh, uh, she ran one of the uh, hearse clubs. And, uh, yeah, there's two or three hearse clubs. The biggest one, which I guess is still around, started as a hearse and ambulance club. I said, so, like, you rescue him, and if it fails, you, they go to the other club? Or, I'm not quite sure how that worked out. Oh, how interesting. But they, they got the, and I knew several people that dentally had—oops, sorry, hit my mic. Um, several people that dentally had had uh, fangs— put in that were permanent um, like Which I that. suppose aesthetically seems like a good idea, but like
0: then I think about like all the things that you want to just enjoy like in a food way. Right.
1: And repeatedly they would cut their tongue. I'm sure. Yeah. Because prosthetic fangs, speaking, you know, as someone who's Because worked... these were inside. These didn't stick out of the mouth. It's just if you opened your mouth, you could see these two fangs.
0: Well, I just did a, a vampire uh, picture not long ago where, that I wrote where we got the prosthetics put in for the actor, and they're little things, and they're very sharp. Yep. And he, um, I remember the, the effects artist kept telling him, like, you can't eat with these in because you're going to cut your tongue all up. Mm-hmm. So to just, like, put those in on a permanent basis. Yeah. And I just think, like, from a hygiene perspective, because I'm a type A person, like, (laughs) you're going to eat, like, a a
1: PB&J. That's going to get all stuck
0: up in that business. Well, at
1: least your fangs won't fall out. That's true. You kind of glues them in with raspberry jam. (laughs) Now, you know, I went on um, your IMDb. Oh, and and I, I noted the difference between us because we have a lot of things in common in this industry and stuff. Sure. But I'm I, afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. <laughs> On your IMDb, it does say uh, cheesy yet seductive. Managed to make cheesy talk seductive as opposed to mine, which says brutally boorish, which I think is st- <laughs> um, So I the okay the
0: IMDB trivia that says <laughs> is known for his uh, Cheesy yet seductive delivery of lines. I, I want to like this question comes up when I do interviews other places every so often <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. I <laughs> I know exactly who wrote it. It was uh, this producer named Christy Jett she worked on the popcorn documentary at least I think it's Christy. She's never coped to it. Christy, but, if you're listening. yeah. But um, w- w- I had been doing something and uh, I was doing an on-air interview for something a while ago and she kept commenting. She's like, oh, you you, you managed to make things sound cheesy and seductive. And <laughs> then within like A month it was in my imdb trivia and i have no clue (laughs) like what to do about taking it out but now i think it's funny so i want it to stay keep it keep it uh so i'll take it and you know honestly i do a lot of voice work uh in in the world of of films so maybe that's got me gigs maybe people are like we need it to sound kind of sexy but
1: stupid Let's get Michael Veron. So you should be working on SpongeBob soon.
0: Oh, my gosh. I would love to be a voice on SpongeBob. I'd
1: love to work on SpongeBob. That would be so fun. I mean, I probably would just be like a sad fish. (laughs) 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 Oh, me. Oh, my.
0: Has anyone, speaking of horror, if we're going to go back there, has anyone talked about the fact that SpongeBob works at a fast food restaurant that serves crab patties that's owned by a crab? Isn't
1: that cannibalism? Mr. Crab. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and keeps trying to lose the formula to Plankton. Hmm. That's very odd. And then you have... Uh, this feels very Twilight Zone. What is his sidekick? A starfish?
0: Oh, yeah, Patrick.
1: Patrick's a starfish. And what's the other guy that lives next door? The one who's mad at everything.
0: Oh, yeah, I relate to him. Squidward. <laughs> Squidward. <laughs> <laughs> I like that I've never actually, like, fully sat down to watch SpongeBob. But, oh, he's funny. But I know all of this, just from, like, being
1: adjacent to... Except <laughs> for my granddaughter. It basically has that Three Stooges vibe where guys kind of like it and women think it's stupid. Ah. You know, there's I don't know what that is. That seems to be almost universal with the Three Stooges. I do think something's happened recently in the world of animation that
0: is uh, very different from the cartoons of my youth, and I think definitely the cartoons of yesteryear, is that there's a lot more subversive material. Oh, yeah. That, uh, it, although it looks fun for kids, when you, like, watch it as an adult, and maybe they're making it for the adults in the room who have to watch it with kids, but I see things like Adventure Time or Teen Titans Go,
1: where there'll be a joke that I'm just like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, Teen did... Titans, when my, my wife was babysitting the granddaughter and first time the granddaughter loved Teen Titans and my wife's watching it it was like suddenly her eyes got really big she's like what the hell are they saying on here (laughs) you're right Teen Titans specifically oh yeah I've seen like Every episode. I'm a
0: huge Teen Titans fan. I I, uh, have no qualms, like, laying it out for the world that uh, Teen Titans and its spinoff, Teen Titans Go, is one of my favorite things. Yeah, Sue is like, I don't like those people. I don't like that show. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm just like, this is so inappropriate. (laughs) And it's coming from the mouth of Robin, Batman's (laughs) sidekick. Like, that makes it even better. Uh, So you mentioned A Quiet Place. What else have you seen recently that you uh, like or are inspired by?
1: You know, I uh, it didn't work for me 100% by any means, but there, obviously Shape of Water is kind of a ground-changing film. It's taking the beauty of the stuff that Guillermo does, like in Crimson Peaks, which I hated, but, but the beauty of it was incredible. For sure. Uh, the set design, the photography, the acting's fine, everything's okay. And then taking that to the next step and putting it in our genre. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the Academy would recognize Shape of water and get out, and a lot more because I haven't really seen genre films do anything since Jeff Goldblum did The Fly, right? You know, so um, which I don't is a know. real epidemic movie, yeah, which is interesting during that era of the 80s, yep. Yeah. So I, uh, I think maybe our time is coming. You know, but I love the fact that that, uh, genre films are getting recognized by the mainstream. Right. And and that may be happening in in books and stuff, too. We'll have to see, because for so long, Stephen King was the only one carrying the banner. Right. Uh, And Anne Rice once in a while, little Clive Barker. But it was Stephen King who was leading the charge. Right. And nobody else was selling to the mainstream.
0: Well, and because I usually ask guests about... uh movies that they've seen but because you're so entrenched in the world of literature have you read anything recently that you really like or recommend? I, th-
1: there's a lot of new authors um um that are very good paul Tremblay is very good um i think it's josh mallerman he wrote bird box bird box and he's got a new one uh now called uh, unbury sarah You know, (laughs) but he's very good. He's a very literal, literary, literary writer. So um, I think for those people who are really tired, I think zombies for me have really run their course. It's kind of like what vampires did when Twilight ruined it for everybody. Right? Um, Zombies just got oversaturated. I mean, where can you go now? Now we just, we won't say why they're zombies. Okay, who cares? They're still zombies. Right. I'm, I'm done with it. So I'm waiting for the next wave of, something to happen right um universal was it tried with the wolfman movie that with uh, that wasn't antonio that was uh, benicio benicio yeah. um, but it didn't work anthony hopkins and it didn't even make sense by the right. time you were done with it but i don't know it's hollywood right now big hollywood is screwing up horror and the small hollywood get out a quiet place has got it. Right. They've got it. So I think now that Hollywood has almost completely gone to the point that either you're doing a $150 million tentpole film of guys in spandex, or... You're spending ten million and doing some small film that you don't give a wide release. Right. There's
0: nothing in between anymore. Isn't it wild though that ten million is considered a small release? Yeah. Yeah. I always think about that. Because <laughs> I'll be in meetings where they'll be like, well, it's gonna be a small picture. It will only be two point five million dollars. I'm like, is that small to you? I'll take yeah. I'll take that money if it's not a lot. You're Covers <laughs> my rent for a few years. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: But I think because the viewers, and especially going back to our conversation about all the different platforms, mm-hmm. I think the viewers aren't hung up on budget anymore. If no. they go to the big screen and want to watch an Avengers movie, they want to see all the explosions and the CGI and all of that. Right. But on the other films and on the stuff they watch from Netflix and whatever, I don't think they care about that so much, especially if you're watching it on your
0: phone. No, I think multi-platform has changed expectations in ways that the audience old guard wasn't expecting. Right. Because I, uh, I've seen this a lot in the digital space where uh, the new generation, they will watch different content on different platforms. And as long as it like aligns to their expectations of the platform, they don't necessarily care that it's a $500,000 project versus a $500 million project, right. or a $500 project. Some of the best material that I've seen recently, there's this Canadian uh, vampire series called Carmilla, which is uh, all about Carmilla, but updated, right. it, lesbian vampires and things. And it was done as a YouTube series, which I feel like they made for like very little money. And it was so good. It was one of my favorite things I watched that year.
1: I get emails all the time or Facebook notices from friends and stuff and go, if you have haven't seen this short film on YouTube, you got to check it out. Right. And and you don't go in expecting explosions and big stuff. But you see some fascinating minds at work on some of this stuff. And I think the other thing that happened is that as much as Hollywood was trying to get into China or get into the Muslim countries or whatever they were doing, they didn't realize that Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff was letting the foreign countries into us. Right. And I have been able to see so many european and asian and middle eastern films that were great that i would never get another chance to see Absolutely. And they, they shoot differently and i get to see the countries in a different light than a travel log mm-hmm. and how people act and respond and stuff I think it's diluted Hollywood a little bit to the point that they can only make the big tent poles. True.
0: And I think that, like, especially in the horror space, because I think horror is always reflexive, uh, reflective of the society that it comes from. It's really great seeing genre material coming from the Middle East and from Asia and from Europe because it's, cause we're starting to get a sense, thanks to the digital culture, of the global community we're part of and how certain issues are affecting different people. And we see it through the art. like. Right. What may be a ghost story from, you know, uh, Iran may also be speaking to socioeconomic issues in Iran. And because this is a queer that we didn't even know existed. Right. Yeah. And because this is a queer podcast, one of the things I always, you know, I want to point out to listeners is if you have the opportunity to seek out LGBTQ films from other countries, especially countries that not You do not traditionally see queer content from you're going to get a whole other perspective of the experience of people out in the world. I I went to an Outfest screening a couple years ago uh, of a gay movie that was shot in China that they had to shoot in secret. And then get out of the country because at the time the movie was made, it was illegal for them to make that movie. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't explicit. It wasn't any sort. It was just a love story where, like, these two guys fell in love. But it was just, like, they had to do it under cover of night. And was it a great movie? Not Really, it wasn't bad, but the politics surrounding the movie made it a fascinating
1: movie. The opportunity was fascinating to to be able to see it. I mean, like when we saw uh, foreign films in the past, it was always about a political struggle, like Z. Right. You know, but now we're starting to see things like... What is it? A a woman walks home alone at night or whatever. The Iranian. Oh, yeah. That movie was great. It was great. And yet it had nothing to do with politics except the overall social politics. Right. Obviously, that infiltrates everything. But it wasn't a political movie. Right. And it was so interesting to see. Regular people making a regular movie from a foreign country where we know they're all screaming, raving, uh, you know, radicals. And, but, uh, yeah, according but, to our news. According to our <laughs> yeah. news. Because right. we, we tend to think that the people of a country are who their leaders are. Right. And as much as we know that's not true with us, yes. why do we put that on other countries? Right. You know.
0: And so I think rather than look to the politics of another country, look to their art. Yes. The
1: art tells the story. The art will change. Yeah. I just read a quote somewhere that it was talking about art will cause more social change than all of the wars and political speeches ever made. Amen. I can get behind that. Yep. Uh I love the culture. That's the thing. It's the yeah. culture that brings it in. And the more diverse I don't. Somebody asked a question. They said, why do we automatically assume diversity is good or diversity is better? And that is an assumption now. That we right. are—I mean—with the pushing of diversity agendas, right? I don't think that's the point. It's I think not the, the point. point is that more op- opinions and more inclusion give you more options. Yeah, and I to think bring that, different things to the table. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that too is I hear that argument
0: a lot. I hear these people that are like, "Well, why do there have to be queer characters? Why do there have to be people of color?" Blah 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 blah. And my argument is this for So many years, we had a very specific kind of protagonist and a very specific kind of narrative. And yes, there have been amazing stories and amazing pieces of art and uh, the groundstone of the foundations of cinema have been set on these things. But that's one perspective and the whole goal of art is to open us up to new perspectives gay people exist black people exist people of color trans people people of different religions they're all here and their narratives aren't being told it does nothing to take away from the narrative that already exists because it's always going to exist right all you can do is add to that and i you know that's (sighs) yes that adding is not subtracting from the other narrative 100 percent. and you know i've had people like say that to me where they're like well i don't you know feel like I need to watch movies about queer people and I'm like look I love movies I grew up watching movies my whole life is movies I made a career out of it and growing up 99.9% of the movies I saw had no LGBTQ people in it and I still managed to find something to identify with In the narratives that were presented because I, you know, could see aspects of characters and things and people that I liked.
1: Well, how old were you when you realized that that you were gay? Uh, probably teens. So you had seen movies prior to that and stuff that you could relate to. And then when you realized that, did you feel you weren't relating to them or were you still relating to them? Well, because there's still a human experience.
0: Right. And so, like, when people get that grousing and griping going on, I always say, if I can sit and watch a movie and take something out of it, about people that aren't part of my world experience, you sure as hell can, too, because we had to do it our whole lives. Right. So welcome to the fucking table. That's all I have to say. Well, that's true,
1: but it's not a punishment. No, it's not a punishment. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that, that I could watch... Uh, anything I could watch old Man in the Sea about a Cuban who has a i fi- 'm not a fisherman i 'm not a and still find something to relate to in the right. human condition absolutely and that 's what it is it 's ultimately art about the human condition if
0: you are looking, you can find something there
1: right yeah and i think it 's mostly people that are afraid of change, mm-hmm. afraid of getting out of their sweet spot because They might see something they didn't want to see, and it made them uncomfortable. And my perspective has always been good art should cause a reaction. Good, bad, indifferent, whether I'm putting, you know, the crucifix in a glass of urine or whether I'm painting Mona Lisa. Right. It should cause a reaction. Well, I think there
0: is. Make me think. There is a misunderstanding of the phrase arts and entertainment. It's art's. And entertainment. Right. Art is supposed to challenge or, you know, the function of art isn't always just for you to shove popcorn in your face and clap. It can be that. And often it is that, but I I have relatives who will be like, well, I, you know, I don't want to see a sad movie. I don't like, I only want to be entertained. You know, that's not art to me. I'm like, that is art. Like if you, if if you see something and it makes you have questions and it pushes buttons, uh, makes you talk about it. There are movies that I wholly appreciate, but I don't know that I would say I, I loved, because they made me have to like go sit outside and think about like, wow, maybe I could be better at this or maybe the world needs this. You know, there is there is the function of art both as entertainment, but both as a mechanism for information, for social change. Uh, I think that, yeah, what was funny is like I, I just really um, didn't think about how far afield that was, you know, this conversation was going to go in terms of the need for that. But I right. suppose that's the arc of this whole series is is the discussion
1: of um, how art is affecting people. Right. And I'm not one of those people. I have friends who will watch the same movies over and over and over. I'm not a person who usually even watches a movie twice. They're, right? I'll never get through them all. It's like the books on my bedside table, right. my wife said, if you put another book there, you're going to block the lamp and you won't be able to read at right. night. It's the same way with films. There are so many films. And now that the world has been opened up to us in film, right. There's, I'll never get through it all. No. And it doesn't matter to me if I'm watching something that I'm totally unfamiliar with. I can get something out of it. Absolutely. I like what you said about the stack of
0: books. And before we head off into the night, I will share, <laughs> I will share a quote with you from uh, Daniel Handler. One of my favorite authors, uh, he once wrote, I will probably die next to a stack of books I was meaning to read. And I think about that probably every day. Yeah. Because I think anybody who reads, a lot knows exactly what he means. That's right.
1: Yeah, and they're not in any order. It's no. just that the one I bought most recently is on top. Right. <laughs> well, you own a bookstore, and I buy uh, books from you. You see how many books I buy. <laughs> I buy books from me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so
1: what's what's on the horizon for you, Dell? What's next? Well, we don't want to put uh, a time frame on this podcast. Uh, there's a. Volcano in Hawaii right now. <laughs> um, you love I, that volcano, again. I love that volcano. I have a friend over there, and I said, is this close to you? And they wrote back and said, no, about two hours away, but wow. What, they didn't even know. <laughs> um, I thought Hawaii is like this big, you know, right. just a little, little oh, thing. Oh, no. Um, having never been there. For me, I think it's reaching out and beyond the store. I think that the store is starting to get to its... Zenith, and then we will do whatever. I we will never give up the corporation. Mm -hmm. We're not going to give up the the website. All of that stuff is too hard to establish in the first place. And we would actually like to spread our wings and do more. I'd like to do more radio, which is where I came from. I'd like to write more. I'd like to, as you know, because you even worked with me on some of it, do more script stuff. I'd like to I'd like to do more conventions and shows that I wasn't able to do because I had to run a store. Right. Uh, There's all kinds of different things I'd like to go into. So if you want me, call me. It's uh, don't talk to my wife. Just hire me on the side. (laughs) Uh, But there's yeah, there's so many places and ways to spread my wings at this point. So another year or two of the store. And then I think it's and during that time. Formulating how to reach out and do something right. else because some things seem feasible up here in my head and then when I put it on paper, I go, well, that was just stupid. You know, why was I thinking of that?
0: Well, there are no bad ideas, just
1: uh, bad executions. That's right, bad implementation. Right. Of the... <laughs> but thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for everything that you do and you and Sue do for the horror community. I know it's so valuable to it, so many of us.
1: Me too. It's, it, it, it fills my heart. It does enrich me. Well, thank you, uh, listeners.
0: Please, if you're in Southern California, go to Dark Delicacies or visit them on their webpage. I know they frequently uh, make things that are in the store available online. You can pre-order things from signing events. Uh, also, check out Dell's books and uh, just keep your eye out for this fabulous human and all the work that he's doing. Thank you again, Dell. Thank I'm you, Michael Verratti, your host, always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck.